our Graf Thornton COP28 podcast series, part of the Financial Services Risk and Regulation Unravel podcast. For this episode, I'm delighted I'm joined by the Lord Mayor, Michael Meneli, here at COP28 in Dubai. Thank you very much for joining me today, Mr. Mayor. Well, delighted to be here. It's a great COP. Yes, you are less than a month into the role, actually, and one of the first events you're attending probably is that scale is COP28. Um, how are you finding it so far? Well, I'm finding the role fantastic. It's everybody should be Lord Mayor of the City of London once in their life, I think. Uh, it is a one-year role, and I'm on day 24, and I think the very fact I'm counting uh, <laughs> says something. But as I look back over the past 24 days, they've all been super. And I went to the hygienist last Wednesday, and I, I wouldn't even change that day, mostly because I got it all clear. Um, but no, it's 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 lovely. But uh, COP is very, very important for the city. It has been uh, for many years. Uh, your listeners may not be aware as a fellow accountant in many regards. Um, but in fact, the first Clean Air Act was passed in 1953 in the city of London. And we have been at Rio and Johannesburg and every single COP up to this one, number 28. And that's largely because the city has long seen uh, the climate change debate uh, and the importance of establishing those markets. I myself um, began uh, doing research on uh, forestation and land use in the 70s. I created the first digital maps of the world in the very early 80s, which led to the establishment of the World Conservation Monitoring Center, for example. Uh, in the 90s, uh, I was personally involved with the corporation, and we were very, very active in establishing the carbon markets. Um, that was the big result of COP3 in Kyoto in 1997. Uh, we launched those markets in 2005. These are the emission trading markets. Yeah. Uh, and then we saw them collapse in 2007, <laughs> um, largely because governments were issuing twice as many permits as they told us. So yeah. the markets actually functioned fine. It's, uh, it was the governments that were there. Uh, and then, you know, I've continued to be working even on up to the present uh, things like uh, offtake agreements and carbon uh, sustainability linked uh, bonds with sovereigns. So uh, I'm a personal advocate of it. But, but it's not about me. The corporation has also always been uh, very, very strong on the climate change. And I think that's because what, again, a lot of people don't realize, corporations nearly 1,400 years old. We're the oldest democratic uh, residence cooperative. Yeah. Uh, that's what we are. Yeah. And it's it's certainly a subject that is close to your heart. Mm. I can see that. I know it's featured heavily in your program as well. What, what do you foresee to be the, the key decisions that we can hope to get out of this COP28? It's sort of been a few days with recording this on day four. It's been already some big announcements. It's already been some sort of media attention to drawn to certain subjects. What, in terms of hope, if you like, what is your hope for COP28 this year? Well, I think, I think it's important to divide COP almost into two parts. There's a group of hardworking representatives of various national governments here to do a job of hammering out negotiations. Uh, and that doesn't require 70,000 people. I believe we had about 35,000 in Glasgow and uh, a large number at Charm uh, last year. Um, so in a sense that you can divide it into the serious negotiations mm -hmm. and the rest. Um, you'll, you'll hear things from you know the biggest forum for people to get together and underscore the importance of climate change, which is true. You'd also hear some people describe it as a circus. So there's a bit there's a bit of both in it. 
within uh, the circus, so to speak, but you know the, the informal comp is is really what we're talking about. We've seen we, we've seen a very very strong positive energy, a very very big announcement of a thirty billion dollar fund on the very first day. So all of that's going well. Um, and probably will continue to go well. It's a well-organized comp. Uh, it's a, a comp where people are getting together and having some pretty open discussions, which is good. When it comes to negotiations, uh, some of us can wander around the edges of it. Um, what I would hope for, and we won't know uh, for, for another 10 mm-hmm. days or so, is what I'd hope for is a renewed emphasis on making the carbon emission markets work. I think mm-hmm. that is absolutely crucial. We must get distracted by that. Uh, we've got a lot of other work to do in areas like transition finance, nature finance, blah, blah, blah. But COPS, strictly speaking, is only about trying to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And these other subjects are ancillary and not core to it. Yeah. Although I must say, I'm just coming out of a conversation, uh, a big event with the first minister of Scotland and the president of the World Trade Organization, where the focus was around just transition and technology. And it was absolutely fascinating because you can certainly see the difference and the linkage between, obviously, the greenhouse emissions and how we make sure that we adapt, if you like, in a, in a new world where uh, perhaps food production is not going to look like at all what it does today and how we, um, how we sort of move to that space. Um, I guess sort of going back to some of your commitments with regards to sustainability and some of your comments about sustainability being given impetus through capital markets funding and emerging solutions and innovations do you believe that should also include the technology or rather what is the role if you like in your view um, of technology around carbon extraction and, and carbon capture storage obviously a lot of the focus on this cop is around transition and adaptation and this technology is a very important part of it well just to help the uh, remind you in the terms uh, do shift a little bit uh, when we look at emissions trading, these are effectively permits to pollute. Yeah. And the idea is that by some point, say 2050, there will be very, very few of those around. Um, we will still have a residual element of permits. Mm-hmm. People will still have to emit carbon for certain purposes. And that leads you to say, well, what are we going to do then to actually get to net zero? And that immediately throws the emphasis over onto the other side, frequently called the voluntary carbon markets. Um, And we would expect people to be compensated for removing a ton of carbon from the air. Now, that broadly boils down into two approaches. The first approach is nature-based. So can I plant trees or seagrass or something like that? Mangroves. Mangroves, yes. In fact, (laughs) tomorrow morning at 4.30, I will be kayaking through the mangrove swamps in Abu Dhabi. Wow, Um, safe. uh, We have a project in the city of London, which we're trying to get launched to do some seagrass planting on the Thames, um, Mm -hmm. because we have some problems in Britain. The seagrass cover has decreased by 50% over the last few years, but uh, but that's a, those are good examples. And, and, and the interesting thing about those examples is, are they permanent? Mm. So I tell you, pay me to remove a ton of carbon a year because I'm planting forests. And then after 25 years, I go, well, she stopped paying me. I chopped the trees down and burned them, <laughs> right? Mm. So that, that's uh, that's not the that's not the approach. Or I, I have a seagrass farm, it's going really well, and then a hurricane hits and what happens mm. then? So we. Uh, the nature-based approaches are important and, and do need to be made to work. And the City of London Corporation has been doing a tremendous amount, of it, most interestingly, uh, with the International Regulatory uh, Steering Group, where we've been issuing a lot of uh, standards and guidance notes on that. On the other hand, you then get into what we might call technical sequestration. So can I pull uh, using uh, air capture a ton of carbon out of the air or 
can I, for example, build a plant to sit alongside a typical um, uh, uh, LNG or oil facility and use that to capture the gas? And can I store that gas perhaps underground? Mm -hmm. uh, these technical approaches work, but it is difficult to see how we get the payments mm -hmm. against the emission markets. And the two are quite different, uh, the two being the, the emission market, on the one hand, is a pretty well-regulated market. We kind of know when you've emitted a ton, uh, particularly on what I'd call centralized plants. Um, the difficulty with the voluntary carbon market is, is measurement um, and uh, on the natural stuff. Uh, and then it's also um, really the confidence that stuff that you sequester, for, for example, underground will stay there. Yeah, and it's also a limitation of, of scale, I guess, because as to how far you can get into, you know, trying to absorb all the emissions in, you know, carbon capture storage, for example. It, it's certainly quite, um, it perhaps is not a sustainable solution for the longer run, and we still need to look at actually genuinely ultimately reducing emissions and getting to the net zero targets. Yeah. And I, I guess it's sort of, you mentioned um, trading already a few times, and I know that's kind of close to your heart as well. Do you still think that there is a, a role if like or big place for carbon trading in capital markets given what we've heard recently in the media about for example some of the Amazon credits kind of stories etc and from a reputational point of view do you think that is being impacted? Yeah well the, the, to take the last bit first yes clearly reputationally it has been impacted um, and, and don't forget, we had the same impact issues on the on the emissions trading market in 2007 mm -hmm. when people woke up and said, wait, governments told us they were limiting it and they, and they weren't. I fear that's exactly what's going to happen. I think I'm asking the question. Yeah. But but let's 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 give some positive news. Well, since uh, 2005, when the EU ETS was launched, we've seen this system being copied uh, around the world. There are a lot of regional trading systems. You can look at Canada, you can look at a whole bunch of countries, Mexico. Uh, possibly the biggest news for me was two and a half years ago in uh, in July 2021, China decided it was going to use a, a national emissions trading scheme. So where do we stand at the moment? Well, you know, we're financial people. Last year, uh, the market was approximately $835 billion <laughs> and it covered 23% of global emissions. And I think this often gets missed when you go to conferences and you see people wringing their hands about voluntary carbon markets, we're going well. I would I would like us to do a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, I would like us to be moving that market up to, you know, from 23% to 46%, you know, and, and on up to, you know, to, to 69%, et cetera. And I believe we can go a long way on the emissions uh, market. Equally, uh, let's have a look at the voluntary carbon market. That actually only amounted to two or 2.1 billion last year. So it's it's quite feeble, and it's you know it too is a, a couple of decades old. So what are the problems there? Well, it is impacted by a lot of the scandals that have been in that space, and you can look at the difference in price. Uh, prices obviously vary, but you could say that the emissions market runs around 70, 80 uh, pounds a ton in Britain, uh, 85, uh, 90 euros a ton on the continent, whereas the voluntary markets are well below 10 pounds or 10 euros, typically, in fact, below five. So you've got to ask yourself, how can a ton of carbon be that different 
And the reason is that people don't as yet trust the voluntary carbon markets. Now, it's going to sound like I'm against them. But it's actually a lot of opportunity, by the sound of it. Tons of opportunity. And in fact, what, what I would like to see is that we do get the emissions markets going. But we're going to need to make the voluntary carbon markets work. But it's not in a rush. If you see what I mean. Yeah. Let's let's get it right. So we've had a few, we've had a few bounces. Um, one of the things I do also find interesting is people forget the the scale of the opportunity. Mm-hmm. So if if the carbon the emissions markets, for example, got harder and grew, you would expect what? You'd expect the price to rise. So moving up from say 80, 80, 90 euros a ton on up to you know 180 yeah. on up. What, what should you do then? What you should do is you should buy sleepy, dopey, carbon intensive <laughs> businesses. Yeah. Because if you can strip it out, you yeah. can make a lot of money because they're undervalued. So uh, I believe there's a huge amount of potential there. On the voluntary carbon markets, because they are an earlier market, the potential is probably more a uh, science of technology play. You know, what, what can you do either in agriculture or, or, in, uh, or in direct chemistry and physics to, to remove this stuff? Yeah. And I guess sort of on a very related note, what do you think is the role of sustainability linked products to kind of take us closer to all the net zero goals? Yeah. Well, one of the uh, my firm, uh, Zian, runs the uh, the Global Financial Centers Index and the Global Green Finance Index for many years. So probably quite informed. One of the problems I found when you look at the product line of green finance is people keep coming back to green bonds, green bonds, green Mm -hmm. bonds. Now, green bonds are interesting because they are effectively a use of proceeds bond. Um, So it's, I promise, I do swear that I shall only spend this on stuff that's pre-approved. If you think about it, there's a lot of problem. But it's also very limiting. Sorry to interrupt. It's also very limiting because it sort of almost takes out of the opportunity in terms of what you can achieve. And it takes out learning. Exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's precisely the point I'd make, Rena. It's it's you can't learn. Mm-hmm. So I go out and I say, well, I raised I raised 50 million to build a 25 megawatt plant in biomass or something. My numbers are probably all over the place. But the point is, I, I, I raise that money and then I find out I can't do 25 megawatts. I can only do 12. Mm-hmm. And suddenly the, you know, the the. Um, the purchasers are going, you naughty, naughty boy, you shouldn't have done that. And what's how are you going to punish me? Well, when you come back to the market. Yeah, we're going to punish you. We're, we're to, and I say, well, actually, that's funny because I can I've got good cash flow and I'm a legal business. I have all this upfront cost to issue the green bond, but I won't have that upfront cost at the same level to just do a normal bond. So we're seeing that people mm-hmm. have done one or two green bonds and they switch back to the normal market. Sustainability-linked bonds are quite different. They're actually outcome-based. So I have to achieve this target. I have to reduce my emissions, typically expressed as a ratio. So per ton of revenue or, sorry, sorry <laughs> per pound of revenue or or per product line or what have you. Um, so that's a ratio that I have to do. I have to meet that target. And it doesn't mean that I have to spend the money on the bond on the target. I could spend the money on general purposes. Um, so I, I believe there's a lot of potential there. The sustainability-linked market, though, I think has one particularly interesting area, and that's sovereigns. So to help your readers along, the the green bond market arose roughly around between 2005 and 2010, and probably had its heyday. We've now seen sustainability-linked corporate bonds, which only emerged in 2018, interestingly on the continent with uh, Louis Dreyfus and Danone and Enel. Oddly, it was not a British invention at all. Um, very advanced product lines, but those were only in 2018. And yet, five years later, 
the sustainability linked bond market is about the same size as the green bond market and rising. But the exciting bit was last year, we saw two sovereigns issue bonds that were sustainability linked. One was Chile, I know it well, I, I help work on it. Um, and what they've done there is they've tied their carbon emissions and the percentage of renewables in their grid uh, by 2030 to the interest rate. Very ambitious. Yes, as well. So the interest rate goes up if they mm -hmm. fail to if they fail to perform, and that's very similar to a government promising uh, that it has an inflation policy, say two percent, and if inflation is five percent, you get three percent uh, on the coupon. So I think those are very exciting bonds. Uh, this bond was also copied by Uruguay in October, and uh, Uruguay added quite interestingly a sustainability target for forestry. Uh, and that's measured from outer space. So, you know, they if they decrease their forestry, the interest rate goes up. So I call these policy performance bonds. I also sometimes call them bond cuffs. For the first time, we're able to tie a government to its policies, and I can use these bonds as a hedge in a portfolio situation. So I want to invest in green, great, but I'm not sure I fully trust the government. I buy a bit of the bond, and that fits in the portfolio. Whereas um, hitherto one would have had to purchase fossil fuel projects. And in fact, if you look globally and you see that fossil fuel projects are invested in about as much as green and renewable ones, you can see that the financial markets are saying, in the sort of voice that only financial markets say, we bet it's at best 50-50 yeah. <laughs> that we're gonna achieve these targets. But with these types of bonds, we're seeing a real transformation. And both Chile and Uruguay have come back to the market. There's huge interest and appetite. Um, and I've been pushing this for nearly 20 years. I was uh, up until 2017, people said nobody had ever issued these and they started issuing and they said no sovereign would issue. Now we've got two sovereigns that have issued them. Now they say, well, no, 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 you know, no European country would issue them. So we'll see. We'll see. I have every other. Do we have actually any European countries that are sort of focused on that? Uh, no, uh, I certainly have been in discussions with uh, finance ministries of many sorts, uh, many of them in Europe. So I, I have hoped sooner or later one or two of them will do it. I think what they've begun to recognize is they can tie these bonds to paying for roads and schools and things um, because, well, sorry, they can untie these bonds so they can raise the bond against their performance, spend it on whatever purposes they wish, and then the, the investors are compensated if they fail to meet their policies. They can also be very selective in terms of which area they focus on, right? And some of the small emerging, I would have thought, European countries, for example, would, would have an appetite for that. Yeah, well, perhaps more easily can achieve those goals. It's absolutely spot on. It's uh, very much the smaller European countries mm. I've been chatting to. Yeah, can you imagine? Well, Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for this conversation. I know you are extremely busy with your schedule today, so thank you for sparing the time. I wish you good luck with the four o'clock mangrove project tomorrow morning. I'm sure it will be entertaining. I've seen videos of it. It looks beautiful from what I can say. So um, thank you again. And thank you for our listeners uh, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be coming back with our next episode on COP28 series very shortly. Thank you and goodbye.